Good evening and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. My name is Reverend Clarence Hall, Jr. And this evening we're gathered here at Morning Star Baptist Church on Cleveland's east side where I serve as the senior pastor. It's Thursday, June 30th, and it's my pleasure to introduce this essential community conversation in partnership with the St. Luke's Foundation during their 25th anniversary. Why don't we give them a big hand? But before we move further, allow me just a moment to share with you just a little bit about Morningstar. Next month, we'll be celebrating 105 years of service in the greater city of Cleveland. And our church is on the site of the former Quay Buick. Some of you may have even brought your cars from here, brought them in to be serviced. And ironically, the place where they used to change oil and change tires, we now change lives and change souls. And so we're honored to be here today, and we're honored that you have chosen our site to be uh, tonight, the place of tonight's forum and this discussion that we're going to be having on change. There's growing proof that our zip code can better determine our health than our own DNA. Factors such as social connections and financial security and the lack of resources can prevent a person from reaching their best health with racism and classism as their major barriers. In our communities, as well as in our neighborhoods, we know what issues each of us face because we live them each and every day. We've heard a lot of talk and we've been promised a lot of action. But what if we can learn from those who are engaged in grassroots work right now? And what if we're able to move the needle toward equity for our own families and for our own friends? Well, that's why tonight we're going to be highlighting local efforts and demonstrate the resiliency and the strength of community power building to achieve health equity. Joining us in this conversation is Jerry Elias Pena, Chief of Culture and Engagement and Senior Partner at Gradient Think Tank. Jerry has over 20 years of experience advocating for people of color, organizing to change policies, and working to give voice to those who feel voiceless. You may also recognize him as a network builder at Neighborhood Connections. We also have Latanya Goldsby, who was raised right here in Cleveland and is the co-founding president of Black Lives Matter Cleveland. For the past five and a half years, she has taken on the role as an outspoken activist and community organizer deeply rooted in seeking changes to the ways in which police interact with African-American communities and communities of color. Then we also have with us Greg Groves, a practicing attorney and an active community member with Neighborhood Up and the Moreland's Group. He was the founding organizer for Project Interface of the Buckeye Woodland Community Congress, which was a grassroots community coalition from 1974 until 1987. He's also a founding member 
of the Greater Cleveland Congregations. And then we also have Andrea Rodriguez, who's a member of the St. Luke's Foundation Resident Advancement Committee. Her experiences include a unique blend of academic, professional, and community projects. She has a master's degree in community psychology with a concentration in clinical services and works as a family advocate for the Centers for Families and Children. There, she provides services and support within three CMSD schools. And then moderating the event for the evening in this conversation is Erica Anthony, Executive Director and Co-Founder of Cleveland Votes. Prior to this role, Erica served as the Executive Director of the Ohio Transformation Fund and Vice President of Government Relations and Strategy for Cleveland Neighborhood Progress. If you have questions that you would like to present to the panelists today, you can do so by texting those questions to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. Or you can also tweet at the City Club, and the staff will try to work them into the second half of this evening's program. Community members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me now in welcoming our esteemed guests. Make sure I'm on. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Pastor. Y'all a good-looking crowd out here. Give yourselves a round of applause. Good evening, all. It is such an honor to serve as the moderator for this phenomenal panel. Uh, you guys are in for a treat. Uh, these are some of the most amazing leaders we have here in Cleveland. Um, I want to just first give my thanks uh, to the City Club for hosting this forum. Congratulations to Tim and the entire St. Luke staff on this iconic anniversary and the beautiful gift of a grant to the organizations that you all provided. Let's give them a round of applause again. Cleveland has such rich, rich history. Um, as a non-native, but a person that has lived here now for over 15 years, every day I am just in awe at the beauty of our community. And having staple institutions like Morningstar is just one of many examples that we have. So thank you again, Pastor, and to all that made this evening possible. So before we jump into our questions, I do just want to give a little bit of a backdrop, and you've heard a little bit of this from Tim, and you heard a little bit of this from Pastor Hall, um, but just want to start with a little bit of context before we jump in. So as we were preparing for this forum and conversation, I was reflecting on this notion around health equity, and I was reminded of a PBS documentary that came out almost 15 years ago now called Unnatural Causes. If you have not seen it, I recommend checking it out. I think it can still be viewed on PBS's website. The series illustrated that decades of research had made clear our health is affected by social circumstances in which we are born, work, and live. Health disparities are closely tied, as we've heard from a couple of people tonight, to race, class, and to gender, which is rooted in unequal and inequitable community conditions. Following the release of this documentary, there was a lot of dialogue about the connection between health equity and power building. One particular article stated that 
This inequality doesn't occur by chance. Small groups of people with clout wield the political power to make decisions that benefit themselves and people like them in city councils, zoning boards, state legislatures, and school boards. The good news, because there is good news, is that we can design a new way of organizing our society that promotes health equity for all. So with that quick backdrop, I'm gonna turn to the first set of questions. Each panelist will be brief, because we do not have a ton of time this evening, which I know is gonna be very hard for these dynamic leaders, but they will be brief. So I will start with what may sound like a simple question to each of you, but contains many layers. What is community for you? Who's in it? What does it look like? And what does it feel like? So I'll start to my immediate right and we'll just go down. Thank you for allowing me to sit on this esteemed panel. I'm very humbled. So for community, it is what neighbors become friends, places create memories, and it has an abundance of opportunity to me. So the who is the residents that create relationships as well as connections. So do you know your neighbor? Are you communicating? And more importantly, are those relationships helping to provide assistance? So for example, if you have a snowstorm like we did this past year, are they helping you with the snowplow? So what is it? It's the place that helps create emotional connections to parks, to buildings. For example, my mother's greenhouse it allows me to remember sweet memories of my childhood, my nieces are growing up, as well as how does it feel. So for me, it either feels abundant or deprived. So if you look at a variety of communities, they have green spaces, they have uh, access to healthy education, and the list can continue. I feel that these provide opportunities for residents to have a positive quality of life, or it creates a, a stressor in residents' uh, livelihoods. In the Neighborhood Connections Neighbor Upwork, two words sum up the uh, meaning of community. And that, those two words are connectedness and reciprocity. And that's connected relationships for the purpose of exchanging action, value, mutually between one another for the benefit one another and in our work we deal with three cultures we deal with um, uh, actors from the uh, private sector market culture actors from the uh, bureaucratic service culture and of course the residential uh, everyday citizen civic culture and um, actually we see two worlds we see uh, one world quite honestly uh, that's dominated by uh, the, the two previous actors, the actors in the private sector and the uh, bureaucratic uh, sector. And um, we see as a byproduct of that a lot of separation, a lot of, uh, of pain in the disparities uh, in uh, the lives of people that we For me, community is a place where people have access to basic needs for living, such as food, housing, financial stability, um, access to opportunity and safety. Um, most of all the things that you guys mentioned before, community is a place where everyone thrives. Um, it's diverse, it's inclusive, it feels like home. Um, 
community is a place where, fellowship, where we fellowship. Um, we build and strategize with our neighbors on how to improve the quality of life of our community. Um, community looks like this room right here. It's diverse. Um, people from different walks of life coming together to actually have conversations, hard conversations that are needed in our community. Good evening. Um, so that's a great question. For me, that, that definition has grew and expanded as I've gotten older. Um, I grew up in a super segregated city in Chicago in the Humboldt Park area, which was predominantly Puerto Rican 24-7. At 14, I moved to East 58th in between Superior and St. Clair um, neighborhood, and I got to see what a diverse neighborhood looked like at that time. It was Eastern European, Latino, African-American, Asian, you name it, um, and my definition grew from there. Um, and then throughout my lifetime and the work that I've been doing, I would say community is, is not only the people that you care and you love and that live in your neighborhoods, but it's also the institutions and the organizations that touch that neighborhood on an everyday basis. Um, for me, that's what really makes a community. Thank you all for your responses. Just to summarize, I think I just want to note that no one said, you know, the 50-foot yacht or, you know, some bling or, you know, anything extravagant. You know, what I heard were what I feel like are some basic tenets that I think many of us desire in our life, right? Abundance. I love how you started, Adriana, with abundance. Thriving, as Latanya said, right? Basic needs, right? These are things that we shouldn't have to beg for or plea for, right? They should be afforded to us because we're all human. Um, and this notion around trust and relationships, right? We, we lost a lot over the last two and a half years, right? We lost a lot of connection to one another. If anything, you know, if, if we can say there's a silver lining, it, it prompted us to really understand the value of time, the value of people, and what that means and the ways in which we're, we can connect. But I also heard a lot about systems. So we're gonna segue there um, because we're individuals, humans within our communities, but there are systems at play. So in keeping in mind what you all just shared, um, let's talk a little bit about designing and undesigning. Um, some may say that the conditions of our community are by design, designed to keep disenfranchised folks marginalized. And at a systems level, how are the systems in our community oppressing and or suppressing people power? And if you have a specific example, that would be great. Uh, we'll start with Jerry and we'll come back down the line. That's a tough question. Um, so I think there's many systems that are, that are oppressive or keeping our folks from sort of excelling um, in their lives when we think about community. Um, for me, an example of it, and I'm, I'm big into story, so I'm just gonna talk about my, my sort of, my experience. I remember growing up as a kid, mother was on welfare. Um, this was a time where there were really tough welfare laws. And um, actually the welfare, the caseworkers would come and inspect the home to make sure that um, if you were saying that it was a home with just your mother in it, that your father wasn't living there and wasn't trying to help the family. And so my dad would have to leave every time the caseworker came. But not only leave, take his clothes, right, and leave for multiple days at a time because we didn't know when that caseworker was coming or when they were leaving, right? And so it led to, um, and this is just my personal story and I'm just used to telling it, 
it led to my father having multiple other lives outside of our home because he just got used to having to leave all the time and not to be home with family, right? So when we talk about, especially kids of color not having their parents or their father there, there were laws that were oppressive and were created to keep a lot of fathers away from their home. So just wanted to say that. I agree. There are so many systems that keep our communities oppressed. Um, part of what oppression is meant to do is to make us think that we have no power, um, to make us think that we can't change the circumstances of our community. Um, I would ask which system, <laughs> because we're impacted on so many levels. Um, I think of the criminal justice system and a carceral system, for instance, um, one that penalizes poor people who can't afford to pay bail. Um, the over-policing of our communities, um, which leads to us being targeted by law enforcement. Um, I think of the electoral system um, that leads to us being ignored or um, ignored by our elected officials or policymakers. Um, I think of systems of redlining and the lack of affordable housing. Which forces us into, which forces us to live in certain areas, um, which are then disenfranchised. Um, we need to focus on extracting power from institutions and historically privileged communities, and reallocate it amongst the historically disenfranchised and oppressed communities, particularly communities of color and Black communities. on? I'd like to draw an example from the, uh, the bureaucratic um, public service culture, and I'd like to identify really a school system and uh, my experience with um, a, a, fa a group of families that had decided that they wanted to impact the quality of their children's education. So between them, these three parents got together, found their own money, came into the community, started having community dinners, start sponsoring trips to movies, start doing things outside of the building, outside of the control, outside of the permission, so to speak, of the school. And there was a, a, a very conflicted relationship because of that, but these three parents succeeded in increasing the attendance performance at that school better than any other school in the city of Cleveland, at investment school in the city of Cleveland at that time. And so this bureaucracy showed its true nature of, of its appetite to want to control and uh, its appetite for power, and they wanted to bring that group under its control, get access to its money, have that group come to them to uh, get permission for the things that they did. The long story uh, short is that eventually the group splintered because there were efforts directly aimed to split them that came from that bureaucracy, uh, would not accept this good uh, effect that came because it came at the expense of their credentials and their standing and it's just the internal nature and the logic of bureaucracies to want to manage and to want 
to really expand its appetite for power. So I picked voter suppression. As we know in our history, like in the 1700s, uh, it allowed certain people that had property. And if you think at that time, who had access to property, right? And then like after like the civil rights, they had poll taxes, they had literacy tasks, who again had these opportunities to even be able to read or have these taxes. And in modern day, what that looks like is closing polls and disproportionately in certain areas. What that looks like is purging voters. What that looks like is having a special election when it's already hard to get voters out. So I'm gonna put a little caveat, please vote August 2nd and again in November. <laughs> so I don't know the date. But also I think we know that these systems exist, but I just want to put out there how we as residents can address this, right? So I helped organize a judicial marketplace with the NAACP, where the goal was to really bring awareness of the primary election as well as the roles that judges have. We have a resident that we just uh, granted funds for the youth empowerment series. So that's in voter engagement, but this occurs in every sector from Robin Brown really addressing lead. And I wanna give her a highlight because she is a resident that took her experiences, learned how to advocate and really dominate that space. And uh, another one I would like to highlight from the RAC committee is Christian Elder. She is really addressing the food disparities and really bringing young children as well as families. So I really wanted to highlight her because she is taking families on field trips. So for example, one may be the food market. Families may not have ever experienced that. So she's teaching the family how to grow their food and experiences as well. Dan, we don't have enough time tonight. So much, so much just from those last few remarks. Some of the themes I heard is about hoarding power, right? Who has it? Who wants it? Who's willing to give it up? But what I also heard is that there is people power. Um, and as individuals, we have power within ourselves. We have powers as a collective. And we have to really organically figure out how do we bring together these assets in a way that strengthen one another, right? Jerry may have a skill that I don't have, but like Jerry and I are homies. So I don't necessarily need to, to gain that skill, right? But I can work in partnership with him just as I could with anyone on this stage. We as individuals have tremendous power and systems are made up with people, right? <laughs> At the end of the day, right? They're made up of people. But what I also heard is that there needs to be accountability, right? Whether I am a resident, advocating for a specific issue or I'm an elected official who's representing a specific ward or a district, there has to be accountability. And it goes back to the first answer, which is that has to be grounded in relationships and trust. At the end of the day, if that's not the foundation, then we can't advance together or try to undesign some of these systems. So we're gonna go into some individual questions uh, that we discussed a little bit beforehand. So I'm gonna pose this first question to Greg. Uh, before the forum, we chatted a little bit, and you mentioned that work has, your work has been focused on addressing chronic levels of disengagement and its relationship to basic necessities needed to live. Despite some of the systematic barriers we just discussed, 
What are some of the creative or innovative ways you've been able to provide on-ramps for community members to get involved? And how have you been able to sustain this? Okay, good. Um, with the neighborhood connections and neighbor up work, uh, in a word, the innovation is network. And if I use a, a few specific words, it's actually um, community network organizing. That is the innovation that takes us into the community. But uh, before I give examples of the types of things we do, the intent of that innovation uh, clearly is directed at uh, feeding and caring for the aspirational energy of residents in, and, and who are caught up in their struggle for the fullness of their humanity, uh, trying to make it in this world to be affirmed as males and females and others, um, persons possessing the, the, the power to uh, be their own subjects and, and not be dominated, not be oppressed, not be subjugated by any other and any other system. So we focus on that individual person. We try to create a culture of self-love, self-care, and uh, in that we valorize the individual, we, we protect and we heal the individual. That is our logic. We, we are about people, we are about the humanity of people. And so in that then we create intentional community spaces and um, we have a whole set of practices centered around getting into your spirit, your soul as an individual and unleashing what's in you, what you were created. You were created to be a, a, an adaptive evolutionary person and, and, and we tap into that and we, we, we know that we can, we can tap into that and bring out the creativity that um, creates the type of new relationships that we know will be needed to cross over lines of class, lines of um, race, um, gender, geography, generation. And uh, so we feel, we, we feel that with that focus, we, we, we unleash uh, an innate energy that's missed, excuse me, I'm sorry, that's missed in these other efforts out of these other sectors. And I can give you a list of the, of the community. Well, Sorry, you. we're gonna move on and try to grab some examples next. Um, okay. I'm realizing the time is going much faster than I thought, but thank right. you so much, Greg. Okay, thank uh, you. Next, we're gonna go to LaTanya. Uh, LaTanya, you have talked so much about the importance of thriving, not just surviving, um, as it relates to the organizing work that you've done. Can you please share how you've been able to do that, how you've been able to capture that spirit in your organizing work, and also if you can elevate what some of those practices may have been through the successful passage of Issue 24 last November. Hello? Okay. Um, it's, for me, it's been participatory engagement, um, being a part of the solutions to the changes we seek, um, equipping people with the knowledge and the tools to be able to shift power within their communities, um, to change their, ultimately to change their circumstances. Uh, for example, we can't expect people to be able to save money to buy their first house 
without equipping them to understand financial literacy. Um, so for issue 24, which is now Charter Section 115, uh, we knew that we had to build a community coalition for collective community power, centering the voices of those directly impacted. Um, we focused on community education to give residents the tools they needed to learn about the city charter and what, was, what it was created for. Um, we informed them about the terms of the consent decree and what it meant for the city of Cleveland to be under the DOJ supervision. And then lastly, we went out into the community and we spoke to people about transformative police reform and to imagine what civilian oversight would look like in the city of Cleveland. So actually going out and having um, pop-up picnics in the park, knocking on doors, phone banking, having those conversations with people in the grocery store, whether in the nail salon, the hair salons, you know, meeting people where they are in the community and, and bringing them into the movement and the work and the changes that we want to see within our community. Thank you so much, Latanya. Mr. Pena, I'm sure you can resonate much with what Latanya just shared. Uh, you also have done some deep relationship building and canvassing in our community and know what it means to affect change through power building. Why is it important to build and shift power, especially for those that are currently holding power? And what can community members do to support these efforts to shift power? That's a great question. Um, so I think it's important that, so there's a couple of things. I always say this is the secret sauce, right? At least my secret sauce. Um, one is, again, deep relationship building, building relationships with folks on the ground and community and institutions um, that can really move some of this work forward. Two, trust, right? A lot of times folks come into our communities, we don't know who they are, we don't know what they want, but they don't take the time to really build that trust that's needed in order for us to do good work together. And then I think three is accountability, like holding those organizations and institutions who are in your community who say they want to help the community accountable, right? Um, and holding yourself accountable as a resident and as somebody as in the community that really wants to create that change, right? And so making sure that I always say it's, it's easier to get in through the front door than through the back door. And in order to get into the front door, people got to trust you and they got to open that door for you. So, yeah. Thank you so much, Jerry. All right, well last but certainly not least, uh, Adriana, I would love to hear, I've heard you talk about your ecological approach to community building. Can you share a bit with the audience what that means for you? How does that show up in your work? Um, and then as a member of St. Luke's Resident Advisement, excuse me, Advancement Committee, we would love to hear a little bit more about your role there and the ways in which, uh, as we heard today, you know, you're connecting to community in a way that honors their agency and their power. Okay, so I'm gonna try to be brief. So with the ecological model, basically it is how we can make collective impact. I know that we were speaking to that directly. So it has different levels. So on the micro level, it's very individual and grassroots. So an example is where I used to study on the front porch and I used to have a neighbor come talk to me every time. Don't quit, don't give up, which was extremely important as a first generation student and I really didn't have that support. On the MISO level, which is organizations and institutions, a major institution was Family Transitional Housing Network. 
family transitional housing that interrupted the cycle of homelessness for my family. And the family transit, no, Cleveland Trans, Cleveland Housing Network, I'm sorry, those are starting to confuse. Cleveland Housing Network that brought us to the Buckeye community. So when we talk about impact, that that institution brought our family. And if they weren't in existence, I don't know if I would be here today. And then we talked about uh, how in the institutions, individuals can make an impact. I have a specific teacher named Miss Barnes. She was my math teacher. And I went to her and I asked her if she feels that I am college material. She stopped everything she was doing. She looked me dead in my eye and she told me, baby, you gonna make it. After that, I pursued to go to the guidance counselor's office and I applied to all the schools that was in my guidance counselor. Um, I was very uncertain, but for a variety of them, I was rejected. And then the ones that I was accepted, I was placed on academic probation. So this is going to the macro, I promise. Uh, a concerned citizen in 2008 decided to take the office of mayor. And he gave all my class um, scholarships to try C. And I said, if I'm gonna do the college thing, baby, I'm gonna do it free, right? Cause I don't even know what's going on, right? <laughs> so all of a sudden I made straight A's. So this really helped my worldview and uh, that we all can make an impact, that we all can impact our communities and more importantly, that relationships matter. So I think the point of this forum is to encourage each and every one of us to get engaged in our communities. I know that if I can have that impact, you can have that impact and that's how we start these movements, right? For me, equity is providing safe and healthy community so we can self-actualize. We can reach our potential, we can pursue our dreams, and we can make our mark in our communities and society. You know, I be having passes, so I be trying, but you know. And I gotta do the St. Luke part, right? <laughs> yes. So St. Luke's, I was very interested in this major institution that basically sits in our backyard. I wanted to see how phil phil the philanthropic field works and how we can leverage these resources, especially on the macro level. So they are, they supported like the judicial marketplace, which is really with voting initiatives, as well as a variety of other projects that help create the community we wanna see. Y'all are on fire. <laughs> Uh, I don't know how much time, so I'm looking to my friends at City Club if I could squeeze in one more. Um, and just to, to summarize, I think what I heard, uh, just to elevate for everyone, healing, right? There's a lot of trauma that we may experience as individuals and our communities have experienced. And really understanding the, the baseline of trust, accountability, and relationships as both Jerry and Latanya talked about, that's part of the healing, right? And I think the other notion that came to mind as I listened to each of you is that this work needs to be transform, tr transformational, not transactional, right? We know what a transaction looks like and we, no one likes it, right? So we have to be cognizant of that when we need to take time, right? Relationships take time. And we don't want to have anyone ever feel like they're being pawned upon or, or just attacked in a way that is just self-serving. So it's really important to take that time. All right, I know it's gonna be hard, but one last question. Um, we have an amazing audience here in person as well as listening to us through live stream. I would love to end by just hearing, you know, what is one of your most memorable power community, excuse me, community power moments where you felt most proud um, and really felt like you connected community? And if you have an example of what someone could do today, tonight, tomorrow, I would love to hear that as well. All right, so 
So in 2013, I was working, I was in Florida and I was working on uh, immigration uh, justice rights. We thought that there was gonna be a pathway to citizenship for undocumented immigrants in this country. Worked really hard that year to try to pass legislation. And I remember being in the car with four of my community leaders I was working with. They were about 60, 70 year old ladies who were undocumented, but woke up every day in this country wondering if they were gonna send them back or send their children back. And I remember I got a call from one of my colleagues in DC and basically the call went um, like, we don't think we're gonna pass this. You gotta let folks know, we have to pivot and figure something else out. And I remember taking that call and I was so ingrained into this campaign with these women. We just had a march from like Orlando to Tampa, it was like a seven day march where we walked um, you know, for their rights. And so I started crying and I was like, I don't even know how I'm gonna tell these folks. And I remember one of them said to me, Jerry, what's wrong? And so I told him and, and basically she started laughing and she was like, Jerry, I wake up every day of my life knowing I'm gonna fight for my rights and for my children to stay in this country. Another day, another year is not gonna change this fight and it's not gonna change our view of why we wanna be citizens. And so what that taught me was that um, when people are in this and when people want real change, it doesn't matter what happens, that change is eventually gonna come. And so. Yeah. Basically, she said, buck up, Jerry. <laughs> buck it up. Yeah, I just would love to hear an example of where you have been able to shift power, uh, an example of your work in the community, um, and if you have a tangible action item for our community tonight that they could do after tonight's forum. One of the scenarios that come to mind was when we were uh, out campaigning for issue 24. Um, we were doing some early voter registration and we were down at the Board of Elections getting folks to do some early voter turnout. And uh, a guy who was, he had just hopped off the bus, he was um, engaging in conversation with the folks because he wanted to know what we were doing out at the Board of Elections. And so we were explaining to him what issue 24 was and why we were there. And he wanted to vote for it, but he, he was under the impression that he couldn't vote because he was a felon. And so he, you know, and we was like, no, that's not true. You, you definitely can vote. And so sometimes we may have to take folks by the hand and lead them to where they need to be in order for them to stand up on their own two feet. And so that, that resonated with me because this is a person who had done his time and who felt like he was returning back into his community but he was not you know, receiving the full benefits of a, of a participating community member. So he felt like his vote didn't matter because he was formerly incarcerated or had, had just been released from prison. But we took him in, got him registered, and he voted that same day. And he voted for issue 24. Come on, <laughs> come on. Yes. Well, you just opened the door, so we gotta make sure our audience here Absolutely. knows that if you are in the state of Ohio, it is different state to state, so if you are here in the state of Ohio, the only time you cannot vote is if you are currently incarcerated in a federal or state prison. 
If you are at the county jail awaiting sentence, you can cast your, you can cast your vote. If you are at a halfway house or a community-based correctional facility, you can vote. So if anybody wants to talk, I know Latanya and I know, <laughs> really everyone on this stage knows a lot about this, um, but that's an urban myth, right? And that's intimidation because the, the notion is that because I have this prior conviction that I'm unable to engage in this way. So make sure you all pass that word around. Greg? Well, um, hello. Yes, I could uh, go back to the 70s and talk a little bit about the Buckeye Woodland Community Congress, or I could stay in the present time and, and talk about neighborhood connections, and I, I, I would choose to, to stay in the present at this point. I think that uh, we're on to something very special in our efforts at providing the dozens of on-ramps and opportunities to engage a community and strengthen and reweave the social fabric of a community. And uh, we have a history of, of be because of how we've been situated to, to uh, put millions of dollars in the community for projects that, uh, community improvement, neighborhood improvement projects by everyday residents. We have put millions, 12, 13, I don't know how many millions over the years in that regard. And um, we are also networking and bringing them together in networks. And I think we have the opportunity to amplify that work and create something that brings thousands into the game of civic life. And um, I'm just excited about the work going forward in that regard. Thank you so much, Greg. So I would say one of my favorite projects was my carpool cinema says drive-in movies that was actually hosted here. And that came about because a parent of mine had addressed that they, we was in shutdown at that time. They was experiencing social isolation as well as mental health concerns, right? So I thought that was a fun and engaging way to combat that issue as well as co-occurring issues such as voting census. We did, uh, we gave away books which focused on literacy, especially with being remote. We had the police officers attend to help bridge those relationships with safety and residents, right? So I think that is a way that you can have an issue and address it. So. Uh, movements or engagement can be from very big to very small, and you can still have an impact. 100%. The work is hard, the work is arduous, but we also like to get lit, and we like to have a good time. So I think what I wanna say before we turn it over to our audience Q&A is that we all have a place in this role of activating and organizing. I will say it could feel a little intimidating, um, but as Adriana was just saying, you can come at it from a big place, or by simply picking up the phone and calling your neighbor, by calling your legislator, by calling your city council person, and everything in between. Democracy building is a spectrum, and you have to find your fit. My fit may not be the same fit as Greg's, or my fit may not be the same as Jerry, but we all have a place. So thank you to our panelists. Let's give them a round of applause. And thank you all again for joining us this evening. So we are about to begin the audience Q&A. I'm Cynthia Connolly, Director of Programming at the City Club of Cleveland. 
And if you are just now joining us on the live stream at cityclub.org, we are listening to a conversation on community power building at Morningstar Baptist Church on Cleveland's east side. With us is Jerry Alias Pena, Chief of Culture and Engagement and Senior Partner at Gradient Think Tank. We have Latonya Goldsby, President of Black Lives Matter Cleveland, Greg Groves, attorney and former member of the Buckeye Woodland Community Congress, and Adriana Rodriguez, member of the St. Luke's Foundation Resident Advancement Committee. Moderating the conversation this evening is Erica Anthony, Executive Director of Cleveland Votes. We welcome questions from everyone in our audience, City Club members, community members, students, and those joining us via our live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club. You can also text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794, and our staff will try to work it into the program. For our in-person audience, if you have a question, please line up behind the microphone in the center aisle right here. Please keep your questions brief and to the point so we can get to as many as possible. Once you finish your question, please take your seat so we can keep the aisles as clear as possible. Working the microphones today is Amber Smith, City Club staff, as well as Micaiah Murray, our City Club intern at Chicago, University of Chicago. Uh, so uh, may we have the first question, please? I think we have uh, one heading up to the microphone right now. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. This was interesting, to say the least. I'm Marilyn Burns. I'm a Wood Hill Homes resident, have been a resident there for 20 years. I'm a community leader and advocate. My question and concern, I heard a little bit briefly from this gentleman in the middle about healing and what we can do. Nothing in our community, first of all, is ever, 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 ever going to change until we start working on people's spirit. Where I live in subsidized community of Woodhill, people are very broken. Nobody cares about the spirit of people. So I want to know, uh, I'm gonna ask Adriana. She is one of the uh, people that come to Woodhill every time I give an event. I have not seen anyone up here at Woodhill when I do an event except for her. So my question is, what kind of approach would you use first to heal, to deal with a woman's spirit who is totally broken and has four children? So I think it's very important to gauge where she is. First, if she, so I think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So if she has very immediate needs such as maybe housing or food disparities or maybe a variety of issues. I believe that it's very hard to work with someone if they're in a traumatic state because even the way our brain is processed, right? It's more of the brain stem and, and it's hard to rationalize because you don't, you're not, your frontal lobe isn't activated, right? So you really need to see where they are, address those needs, if there's any needs that need to be presented and and, and attempt to build that relationship, as we were saying, because if she doesn't trust you, she will not learn from you, she will not seek a resource. So that's been my experience, to really start meeting those needs, building that relationship, and then move to whatever your goal is. So my name is Derek Smith Jr. I'm the founder of Boys Do Read, and I have a question too. So I have a question about learning and education. So my question is, 
do you think learning should be important for everybody with different zip codes? Um, I, can, I can start and then folks want to jump in. I think it, it, it doesn't matter what zip code you live in. I think everyone should have the same access to education um, that everybody has around the city. Um, as someone who grew up in an impoverished community and had an opportunity to go to school um, and really um, gain from being in those institutions, I think everybody should have that opportunity. And I think um, it's pretty sad that we don't invest in public education in this country, that we don't invest in communities where children that look like us um, live and don't have the same opportunities as those maybe in a zip code with a higher income. Hi, I'm Veronica Thornton of Bees Consulting, and I have a question about um, collaborations. As we know the power of community, in the city of Cleveland, there seems to be a lack of collaboration amongst many of the communities and nonprofits. So how do we address that without everybody feeling there's a power struggle? Uh, great question. I, I think that's a question of leadership within the sectors that compete. You do have the private, you do, you, there is the private sector, there is the bureaucratic sector, and, and there is a power struggle in that. So it comes down to uh, someone with the standing or a leadership group with the standing that could convene and cut across these uh, multi-sector uh, areas. And, and that's a part of a, of, of a, of a, of a uh, model that uh, collective impact uh, attempts to do, um, and and I've seen some efforts underway, or or at least started, uh, in in our town that had that collective impact, that convening of people and actors across the sectors, uh, and ultimately we're still going to have to learn to operate and function at that level to deal with the complexity. Of the problems that um, that 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 we're we're challenged with, so um, it, it's 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 a need, and I trust that the leadership will emerge. How you doing, everybody? Hello. I'm just a I'm just a resident of Cleveland and a, you know, a volunteer organizer about the issue of lead poisoning. Um, I studied a lecturer and scholar by the name of Steve Coakley, and he talked about how black fraternities and sororities, uh, many, uh, it was like a, an, an elite division of black sororities and fraternities that were actually commissioned to oppress black people from the black front. You know what I'm saying? So how much do fraternities and secret societies play a role in your organizing activity? 
Just a question. So I'll answer that question. So I would like to say that I'm a member of Zeta Phi Beta Sorority Incorporated, which is a part of the Divine Nine. And we do a variety of initiatives that try to uplift and empower the community. And if you understand the history, um, especially on college campuses, we were very limited in number. So we, we had a collective bond, right? And we, that's how we organized. So each individual organization has their different initiatives. Um, so, but if you would like to learn more information about Zeta Phi Beta Sorority Incorporated, please feel free to contact me. Well said. Um, Peace family, I know most of you all on the stage, I've done work in the community with some of you all. Um, thank y'all for you know your dedication to the people, as well as individuals and other organizations that are here. I think this really speaks to the perseverance and resiliency of black people um, that face all these different barriers, and we still have the wherewithal to fight and stand up, and not only for ourselves, but for the next generation that's following us. So I, I'm thankful to everybody in this room. Um, my question, and I mean, I really don't expect a logical answer, but <laughs> you know, in, in, in terms of some of the things that we're facing, that we have been facing for centuries now in this community, it's like the moment we get our heads up above water and we get a little bit of progress, um, there's another barrier. And then another barrier stacked on top of that barrier. Um, so my question to you all is, honestly, do you feel like there is justice or a sense of us prevailing within this system that is not broken, but working actually precisely to keep us in the position that we're currently in. Do you feel like there can be with uh, reform or that this entire system must be dismantled and a new one built? So historically in Cleveland, we've had a problem. Most folks know that we've had a problem with policing. Um, there has been attempts at reforming the Cleveland Police Department for the past 100 years. Mm -hmm. And so we knew that in order for us to get the change that we were seeking, we would have to mobilize the community. Mm -hmm. And that mean, meant bringing people into the conversation who normally wouldn't have a seat at the table um, and actually engaging with those folks and trying to see that, uh, what changes they wanted to see within their community. Um, I definitely do believe that you can change your circumstances if you mobilize and educate folks on the ways in which how to get to that goal, which is some of the things that we did during issue 24. A lot of folks didn't know what the consent decree was. Folks didn't know that we were under the consent decree for the past six years. They thought that you know once the DOJ came in and did with their report that that was done and over with. And so educating folks on, on how to actually shift the power within their communities and bring them into that movement. And, and like Erica said, there's room for all of us and there's power in numbers. Thank you. I know I'm a moderator, but I have to chime in here just to, and thank you for your question. I think the other notion that we have to think about is what Ms. Marilyn asked in the beginning of the Q&A is about our individual healing, which connects to our community healing. Um, I think about, I, I like to quote artists and rappers and stuff, so I think about Lauryn Hill's doo-wop song, how are we gonna win if we ain't right within, right? So th there's a personal responsibility, right? There's a journey that we have to take as responsible humans on this earth and then transfer that in a way that is seeking to make that transformational change, right? 
and Greg and I talked about this a little bit before we got started, it is really debilitating some days. I'm gonna keep it 100, <laughs> right? Like, to to your point about the layers and right and not seeing like, oh my gosh, like we made one step, we took one step forward and then boom, we get like sucker punched and all of a sudden we're like 10 steps back. But with that, you have to find your moments of peace, right? I shared with Greg, I had a friend pass away today and I started my day unbeknownst to me that I was gonna receive this news with my husband by the water. And in some ways I felt like that was actually meant to be, right? To prepare me for what I was about to experience today. So we have to take that individual responsibility for ourselves and love on ourselves, get right within, and then we can be better stewards to one another in the community. Thank you. Just to get a text question in for the people watching over our live stream, this person wants to know, how does representation in big spaces like corporate offices and major nonprofit and philanthropic organizations help build power for communities? And how can people in these spaces still stay true to their identities and help share power with their community? I guess since I'm on the Resident Advancement Committee, so I think that Mr. Tramber has done a good job with trying to create voices and have seats at the table to re review various proposals and really see if it's a good fit for our community. And I personally constantly try to challenge uh, St. Luke. So I looked on the website and said, oh, I have an idea. And you know, strategy two on your website says that you advocate for policies. Well, I got a judicial marketplace, right? So I think it's being aware of the organizations and what their mission and their values are. And as you can say, as hold them accountable, right? So how can you hold them accountable if you don't know? Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Ronnie Cannon. Uh, I do work with an organization here in Cleveland towards employment, uh, workforce development. Uh, I guess my, I'm not sure if it's totally a question, more so a comment, just to kind of get your, the panel's thoughts on it. Uh, tough conversations, right? How do we go about having tough conversations within, almost to what you were saying, uh, Erica? Uh, how do we have that tough conversation with ourselves to build our community? Uh, long gone are the times where we talk about you get your butt whooped from this house, this neighbor, this neighbor on up the street. Like, how do we have that conversation, panelists, amongst ourselves, where we got individuals uh, skirting or burning out rubber on the middle of the street? That's my brother. That's my brother that's doing that. How do we have that conversation to tell my brother to stop doing that? Or my brother is down throwing garbage on my street and everything. How do we have those tough conversations? Thank you. I, I could jump in really quick. I, so, Greg. Greg talked a lot about the Neighbor Up Network. I'm a network builder within that network. Um, this, just this past Monday, we had a Neighbor Up meeting. 50 residents from around the city showed up and started having those tough conversations, right? Um, and we created space for folks to think those conversations through. And so I say all that to say that we'd love to have you on Neighbor Up, but also we have to create space for those tough conversations and we have to do it in a way that, that really helps people not only have the conversation, but begin to heal from that conversation, right? And so I, I say that to say that we just don't want to open up space anywhere. We want to make sure that it's the right space 
the right people are in the room to tend to that trauma and that we're able to give folks an opportunity to begin to heal and have those tough conversations. Good evening to uh, all the people and uh, good evening to the delegates. And this question is um, specified for all of y'all. So, you know, I came in late, so pardon me, a couple of my comrades is here, so I may have, I may be asking something that y'all might have already went over. But um, I wanna know, because a lot of times when we speak about, you know, uh, things in the community or community issues in general, we speak from a, a perspective of uh, whatever class we may be related to in that moment. And I think that's kind of unfair. A lot of folks go on the news and they speak about things and they ain't even been to none of these places for the people that they're speaking about. So I want to ask, uh, just to give an ideally uh, perception to all the people here, because a lot of folks don't know where to start. You know, you come and listen to these things. They come and see people, but they don't know what to do when they go home. And that energy dies when they leave out the room. So I want to ask y'all, because I, like, I would like to have a conversation with all the people here at some point. How you doing, Mr. Brown? I love you. I would love to have a conversation with all the people here at some point. All the people here. All the people here because some of these folks are tied to corporations, but a lot of folks that we see speaking for the people are tied to corporations. And so my question, I know I was long-winded, but my question is, what is community control to y'all? Because a lot of folks, they are not tied to corporations. They street-level folks, you know? They don't know where to go, so ideally. What is community control to y'all? Maybe it could spark something in their mind, you know, because I could put something on them, but it ain't my time, though. But what is community control to y'all, though? That's my question for everybody. Thank you, man. Uh, well, for me, community control looks like issue 24. Um, it looks like having the power and the oversight to oversee the decisions that are being made to that will potentially affect your life. Um, it looks like community members coming together in rooms like this, spaces like this, having conversation to see how we can come to an agreement that will really actually create transformative reforms that will benefit not just the least of us, but all of us. Yeah, I, I would say that um, you have to be in some form of a power identity in order to get into that power arena that you're trying to control. And if you don't have a base, if you've not built that base, you're not gonna get anywhere near the control that you're seeking. So community co control has to always speak to the, the base of support behind you and how is that being developed. So I guess for me, community control is uh, building relationships within the community, really understanding each other's experiences as well as your strengths so that you can assign tasks and really mobilize and create that energy for your movement. It's really amplifying voices. Um, as we see in society, there are many isms from whether it's ageism, gender, sex, the list can continue, right? Really understanding your experiences so you can sell your why 
right? Because I believe that that stories as well as logic is what helps makes change. And more importantly, really understanding those assets in your community so that you can maybe knock on St. Luke's door and apply for a grant, or maybe understand what this organization's purpose is and hold them accountable. And I think really to make community change, you have to believe that you can make the impossible possible, that you can set this idea into reality. So I wanna note that the streets are a corporation. We can talk about that offline. Um, secondly, I want to channel the energy of the late Mansfield Frazier. Uh, some may know him. Uh, he was one of my first friends in Cleveland. And when I met Mansfield uh, and started to learn more about him as a person and his story, one of the things that he shared with me, for those that don't know, he um, was previously incarcerated, um, but had been out at that time when I met him for some time. And he said, you know, the things that I did that led me to incarceration, I've just got a little more savvy now, right? I'm still hustling. <laughs> He's like, I'm still out in these streets hustling, but I found ways to do it where I'm not getting myself caught up. So I do think it's really important to think about, again, like we're not a monolith, right? None of us are a monolith. Even the five of us sitting up here, we represent different organizations. We represent different parts of the city, but there's a collective bond among us because we have shared value. So again, the importance of understanding that each of us have value in ourselves and in our contributions to our community. And it's about being savvy in your hustle, right? And, and in, the, in the words of Mansfield, like I'm out here in these streets, I'm making things happen. I just know how to do it in a way that's not gonna have me caught up in, in prison. So I think for community control is harnessing that individual power and then figuring out how collectively we can bring together to make change. Good evening, I'm Ashley Evans, and I'm here this evening representing a couple different organizations. I am a member of the Resident Advancement Committee of St. Luke's. I'm also a member of the Woodhill Community Co-op. Um, I do a number of things. And I also am a very proud member of Sigma Gamma Rose Sorority Incorporated. So, if there's any conversation that we'd like to have about BLGOs and how we try to advance our community, I'm always always there, and there's probably a couple gentlemen here in the room too as well that it can be identified. But anyway, my question for the panel is, we've talked about these segments of power, but I, what I would like to hear more about is how the work that we all do is connected to political power and what we do after the vote. Um, so voting is so instrumentally important, and I definitely say that it is just a basic right, and it's almost one of the easiest things that we can do as a citizen to be engaged. But I also feel like we fall short on the rest of the process in between time, in the, that four to two year cycle when someone has become elected. So can we speak a little bit to that and what that looks like for a community? So I would say that, you know, you have to stay engaged um, even once the election is done and over with and, and you voted for your particular candidate or your particular issue, you have to remain engaged, even in the downtime. Um, continuously educate yourself about candidates that are seeking your vote. Don't just frivolously vote for folks because they're on a particular party ticket or a particular ballot. Actually educate yourself about the candidates that you're giving your vote to. Um, we do that so often, just voting by name, that oftentimes that we don't research the candidates to really understand what policies and procedures and legislations that they support that will affect our life. Um, so 
candidate education, I would say, keep educating yourself even in the downtime. Um, and, and, and also going into the community and, and getting folks registered to vote, even the young folks. Um, this past year, Tamir would have been 20. So we, we always get out to the community and we educate our young po folks about the importance of being a registered voter. I would just add, if you just take five minutes after tonight's forum, whether it's walking to your car or sitting in your car when you get home, think about the course of your day. The course of your day, there is not one part of your day that's not impacted by democracy. So we heard Jerry talk about his personal family situation, right, in one, one specific system. We heard LaTanya talk about other systems like the criminal legal system. When I wake up every day, there is a, probably a million different times that democracy is impacting my life, and it's figuring out what is the way that I want to activate and the, how do I want to mobilize, right? Is it me going down to City Hall and now providing public comment? Guess what, we didn't have public comment a year ago, but thanks to the organizers of our community, we can now provide public comment at City Hall. Is it continuing to make sure that there is accountability with issue four in its implementation? Is it calling and writing letters, right? We had a major decision that came down a week ago from our Supreme Court as it relates to reproductive rights. Is it just holding a kitchen conversation, kitchen table conversation with my friends to make sure that we understand what that means for our lives individually, our community's lives? But there's really nothing that's not impacted by both small d democracy as well as big d democracy. So I think, Ashley, to your, to your question about making it real, yes, it's about August 2nd, showing up for our special election or coming in November. But in between that, there are a multitude of opportunities that you can step in and really activate yourself. And again, it doesn't have to be this big, grandiose thing. It could literally just be sending a text, me text message excuse me, on election day and saying, hey, did you guys, you know, to your families, to your friends, to your neighbors, did you go vote? The next day, do you know there's a city council meeting that's gonna be talking about this issue for our street or our neighborhood? And just continuing to keep that communal participatory action going as a relate of your leadership and seeing the ways that people can mobilize together. All right, thank you to our panelists. Jerry Pena, Latanya Goldsby, Greg Groves, Adriana Rodriguez, and Erica Anthony. This forum is presented in partnership with the St. Luke's Foundation as part of their 25th anniversary this year. We are honored to be part of this milestone celebration and grateful to the St. Luke's team and the Resident Advancement Committee for all of their collaboration on tonight's forum. Round of applause for the RAC. Thank you as well to Pastor Hall and Morningstar Baptist Church for being such gracious hosts this evening. And a heads up, the City Club is off tomorrow, Friday, July 1st, in observance of Independence Day. But you can catch us again on Friday, July 8th. We will be joined by Crystal Bryant, Executive Director of the Cleveland NAACP. Crystal will examine what black freedom means today in America. Tickets are available, and you can learn more at cityclub.org. Then on Tuesday, uh, July 12th at noon, we will be back in Public Square in downtown Cleveland. It will be our third outdoor free forum in this summer series. Tony Richardson, the new president of the George Gunn Foundation, will be in conversation with Evelyn Burnett, co-founder and partner of Third Space Action Lab, talking about Cleveland's next era in philanthropy. We hope to see you all there. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, panelists, and thank you, members and friends of the City Club. I'm Cynthia Connolly, and this forum is now adjourned. <laughs>